You're listening to the Medical Protection Podcast Real World Series, where we expose the pain points and explore how to navigate the complexities of healthcare today. My name is Dr. Rob Hendry, Medical Director for Medical Protection Society. This is our very first episode of a new podcast format created for Medical Protection Society members globally and the wider healthcare community. Here at Medical Protection Society, we believe in prevention as well as protection. In this podcast series, we aim to bring you cases, research, and a range of thought leaders to educate and reduce your risks. It brings me great pleasure today to introduce your host, Dr. Katie Grant, Medical Legal Lead for Risk Prevention. Katie brings experience as an anaesthetist with special interests in paediatric anaesthesia and critical care. Katie began working as a medical legal advisor in 2014 on UK cases and has since extended her experience to assisting members throughout Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia and the Caribbean. Katie, can you tell us a little bit about our podcast today? Thank you, Rob, and thank you to everybody listening here today. We know that in safety critical industries, both individual and systems factors can have a major influence on safety and risk. A culture which empowers staff to speak up is vital in preventing and learning from errors and near misses. So this podcast will introduce what we mean by human factors and identify what and how we can do to reduce our risk, particularly with regards to communication. We want to explore why we sometimes find it difficult to speak up, particularly in emergencies, and how can we empower our teams to speak up when needed? Joining Katie today in our podcast is Guy Hurst. Guy is a former British Airways pilot and training captain and one of the pioneers for introducing human factors training to British Airways. Guy has been instrumental in designing and presenting human factors training at the Royal College of Surgeons of England and many major NHS hospitals, including Great Ormond Street and the John Radcliffe in conjunction with Oxford University. Katie, thank you for this opportunity and I'll leave the rest in your capable hands. So I'm delighted today, Guy, that you've been able to join us. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Pleasure. Um, Obviously, we've heard about your uh, very distinguished career and you've got a lot of interesting facets to what you've done. I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about your own experience and how you came to develop an interest in human factors. Certainly. Um, So I was a British Airways pilot from 1971 to 2006. Um, And the first half of my career, I was pretty much a co-pilot. Then uh, back in um, 1989, I um, got what we call my command. I became a captain and passed the courses of all that. And um, very soon after that, I was fortunate in applying to become a training captain. uh, And that involved training and examining other um, pilots and crews on behalf of the Civil Aviation Authority in simulators and on the aeroplane itself. Um, And at that very time, um, a rather visionary um, chief pilot we had in British Airways decided that um, one of the things we hadn't really concentrated on was um, the effects of teamwork or lack of teamwork and how effective teams could be so much safer. And they were thinking of investing millions of pounds in training I think it was 3,000 flight crew pilots in British Airways in in these um, new ideas that were coming over from America. And the board of British Airways at that time were a little bit reticent. Um, And then there was a a very famous um, air crash in the UK, a company called British Midland crashed on the M1. And uh, 
And that was a game changer. And uh, the reason that the aircraft crashed in, in quick terms was that the captain was unapproachable. He was um, he was referred to as old school. Basically, everybody was mm. frightened of him. And um, mm. the airplane um, had an incident, and it's uh, the pilots managed for a number of reasons to close the wrong engine down. Um, the, the, the ridiculous thing was that the, the captain uh, made a passenger address when everything had been sorted out as he thought, uh, saying that they closed the right-hand engine down. And all the passengers in the cabin crew had seen flames from the left-hand engine. And um, oh. they just couldn't believe this. And yet nobody, because they were frightened of him, went up and said, excuse me, captain, sir, whatever. Are you sure you meant what you just said? And when they came to need that power to make the landing, um, the airplane crashed and, and nearly 50 people died. And that was a real game changer. And it was that that made British Airways board invest a fortune in training all their crews on a three-day course into what we call crew resource management, but we would now know as human factors. And I was just at the right time, right place to be one of the small team who designed that course and then got involved in that and developed these courses over the next um, 20 years I was in British Airways. And the thing I look back on it really and think is, I think of two distinct parts of my career. The first half where we knew nothing about this stuff, human factors, and the second half when we did. And not only was that second half of my career much safer, it was also a much more pleasant environment in which to work. So I was sold on it from that moment onwards. And then I got involved, and I can come on and talk about this if you mm. like, um, in, in, in the sort of medical world subsequent to that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating, uh, I, I think, to hear about these kind of accidents from people who've lived and, and worked in those kind of careers, because I think we all we all live with that fear of making an error or making a mistake that leads to patient harm. But of course, as pilot and cabin crew, you, you guys are also holding many lives in your hand, you know, in a, at a very yeah. discreet point. Um, do you think you could, I mean, I think, most of us as doctors know what we mean by human factors, but it, I would suggest lots of us don't have time to really look into it or, or have more than a superficial understanding. Could you explain really simply for us what human factors or ergonomics are uh, and, and why should we be interested as doctors? Oh, absolutely. I think it is a misunderstood term. Uh, human factors is much bigger than just looking at teamwork. And really what we did in aviation was we just looked out at the various behaviours and ways of uh, making our teams more effective in working together. And this all stemmed from three or four huge accidents in the United States back in the 80s, where um, a whole aeroplane crashed and everybody was, was killed. And um, they'd have a sort of two-year inquiry, and the answer would be that the cause of the accident was human or pilot error. And yeah. at the end, the, the regulators over there said, hey, this isn't good enough. We can't go and lose people just saying, oh, it's because the pilots made a mistake. We've got to know why highly trained, highly professional people trying their best with their own lives on at risk would make these errors. And that was where the academia started. And I think really human factors, there's the teamworky aspects of it, uh, but there's also the ergonomics, which is our uh, how we relate to the environment in which we're working. So that's making operating theatres more user-friendly, so the place it, everything's in the right place, or A&E departments. And I have to say, you know, when I went um, and did work and observed and trained and coached in these in environments, I was absolutely aghast at how unergonomically good some of these places were. And it was kind of, it was safe in spite of, rather than because of. So um, I think that's a, in a yeah. nutshell, if, if that explains it to you. Yeah, I think it, it, that's great because I think a lot, a lot of us, I mean, even thinking back to my clinical practice, if there was a more difficult way of doing things, like I don't think we'd be able to find yeah. it. 
And I think I, I was I've been listening to a lot of different podcasts from people in different industries. And one thing we hear is that, uh, you know, a, a bad system will always be a good person. Yeah. And that really struck a chord with me because I think, again, it feels to me that our hospitals generally are ripe environments for just common sense. It seems to me a lot of this is common sense. You know, if you have two drugs that look wow. the same, why on earth are we keeping them in, in the drawer together? Um, I'm totally with you with you on that. And I mean, things like anaesthetic machines where half of them you turn yeah. to increase clockwise and half anti-clockwise. And, and we had similar things in the old days in aviation. Yeah. where, um, And I have a, a great friend who's an astronaut and he mm. said the most unergonomic thing he'd ever come across is when he flew the space shuttle. And it is absolutely unbelievable. And it's because he would, he would make the point, which I agree with, that you should get the end users, whether the, the yeah. doctors or the pilots or the astronauts involved at the design stage as well. But that's never really been the case. And um, and I could, I could relate various stories about accidents that have happened, the sort of chain of the accident started in a badly lit um, engineering storage department where people have picked out the wrong bolts and such like. And that has been the spark that eventually yeah. has seen a dramatic accident. So I think it's something we... We probably haven't paid as much attention as we ought to have done in, in aviation or in any industry, yeah. but I think we're slowly getting there. And I think cynically, again, I was hearing there's some thoughts that maybe things like aviation, you talked about obviously the space industry as well, um, that the, the end user is the one facing the risk. So the pilot is as likely to yeah. go down as, as, as the passengers in a plane. But of course, for doctors and healthcare professionals, that isn't the, the case. But we do know there's no. this second victim, don't we, where... In fact, the, yeah. the impact on a doctor or nurse or healthcare professional um, causing or contributing to a patient's harm or death can be incredibly Absolutely. damaging. I mean, not, it can be tragic. So I think, um, I think I would dismiss that as a, a, one argument why perhaps aviation has led the way. Um, I think what, what's super interesting, we see a lot, uh, the vast majority of the cases we deal with, there's a communication element, whether it's a claim, mm. an inquest, and you know, even advice files, we have lots of our members asking us, um, or telling us stories where communication hasn't gone the way they they wanted or the way they thought it would. Can you think of any um, barriers? I mean, you've talked about this pilot, which sounds awful in the first accident. Um, you said he was homophobic, he was unapproachable, and even even in the face of the wrong engine <laughs> being switched off, and you're saying the whole crew, the whole all the passengers knew the, the wrong one had been switched off. No one could speak up. Um, can you think no. of any other barriers or reasons why people might not feel empowered to speak to their colleagues? Uh, particular time of crisis i think i think um it's all about um power distance gradient or um we used to call it gradient authority and um yeah. and i think what we've we've come to understand is that it's the leader of the team yeah and sometimes that's not always clear in in, in healthcare uh, who is leading the team but the leader of the team it's up to them uh, yeah. to really set that tone and i think what i was amazed about when i first started doing work in healthcare was how little attention was was made of briefings and actually getting the team together before you start the day's work because yeah. that is the pivotal moment not only to talk about what you're going to do today what might be the um, problems that might arise so that if yeah. you've kind of briefed for the expected you've got more capacity for the unexpected not only that but it's also the subtleness of it where you can actually set your stamp on the day and you can make yourself approach you could say i'm not you know dr scary or I'm not Captain Scare. I'm actually somebody who is in it with you. And the fact that, you know, I wear a three-piece suit and have a consultant's badge on or I wear a uniform as an airline captain means that actually I'm just a normal, regular guy or girl and I want you to help me out because we're going to get through this together. And a lot of the work we sort of saw in, in 
often you know, two very or three very average crew members would actually perform better as a team. I've observed this a lot in simulators, better than a, a real outstanding star of the show, who sometimes, because he was so or she was so good, they were kind of unapproachable. And I think that's a really interesting fact that um, an effective team can, can, can be made up of more regular people. Um, and sometimes, I think one of um, Professor Jim Reasons, uh, who was a good friend of mine, one of his comments was sometimes the worst errors are made by the best people. And the trouble is with that is that people expect them not to make errors because they're so darn good. But we know that human error is ubiquitous. Everybody will make mistakes. And when we're tired and when we're feeling under the weather, and of course, pilots and doctors never feel under the weather or never feel tired because we're you know we, we're just superhuman or so people yeah. expect us to be of course we make mistakes of course we don't feel well of course we have domestic things going on where we don't perform at our optimum and that's the time when you need your team with you to help you out and i've had many times um where, where my team have helped me out but i had one very interesting um comment uh, to answer your basic question was i was hmm. going into somewhere in the united states and for some reason i don't know why i had it in my mind that we had a much greater distance to run till we were going to land. So when we were cleared to this end, I was just drifting down very slowly to make it nice and gentle for all the passengers. And with hindsight, I remember the two co-pilots saying to me, hmm, that'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. And all this was going on. What I hadn't realised, I, I got the mental picture wrong. I had my situation awareness wrong. And actually, we were landing in the closer runway, so I was getting a little bit high. By the time I realised it was not a problem, we got in fine. But I said to the guys, who I knew well, you know, why didn't you bring it to my attention more forcefully? And they said, well, you know, you're a training captain. You know, we thought you must know. And um, that was a really um, pivotal moment for me. I thought, well, I think I'm very easygoing. I think people will say anything to me, but actually because you've got those four rings and you're a trainer, you know, yeah. people don't because they expect you to write. And I said, look, never do that again, please. Just, you know, we're all going to make mistakes. And I've, I've observed it many times, obviously in, in, in operating theatres and places, environments like that, where, you know, the, the, the great professor comes in and um, yeah. of course he or she is just as, un, as likely to make a mistake. And people find it difficult to speak up to them. because well, I think what's interesting because you talk about the, the difference in power, you talked about the gradient of authority. I think as a junior, particularly, you want a consultant or a supervisor or a, a specialist who you know knows what they're doing and will lead in a time of emergency uh, or crisis. But similarly, I, I think there's sometimes a difficulty in getting that balance between power and being approachable. Yes. Um, and do you think just saying, to, like you said, saying to your team at the beginning of the day, you know, look, when we, we're all human I, I want you to speak up you know is that is that effective what what can, well, what can leaders or, or senior doctors or team leaders do other than live you know you, you want you want to you want to appear approachable but what happens if you're saying yeah feel free to speak up but they're still the big professor who everyone knows is is unlikely to take it no absolutely right <laughs> and i've seen that on countless occasions no you're absolutely right katie it's not just so you know I don't mind anyone can speak yes. up to me. And, and if you said it, it's the way you said it, it's your body language, yeah. it's the way you treat people in the restroom, in the coffee room, in the crew room. It's that whole thing about um, making yourself approachable. And, um, you yeah, know, I thought um, I, I did a, oh, yeah. a bit of filming with uh, Kevin Fong, who is um, yeah. a very well-known guy who introduces um, TV programmes. He's an anaesthetist. And we talked an awful lot about that. And it, and it is... 
really important. He talked to Sullenberger, who um, you know, landed on the, the Hudson River. And what he was saying, how did they get away with that situation? Well, actually, it's because their programs of human factors, they they'd taught teams, crews, how to, captains, how to open up those channels of communication, how to make themselves approachable. Um, and so in those yeah. awful moments when the completely unexpected happens, they, they kind of relied on what they'd learned beforehand and, and uh, they, they, they could speak up a little more and therefore they had that amazing success on that day. And I think this also also leads back to, you know, it's all very well asking people to speak up, but people will only yeah. speak up if they know what you're attempting to do. Now, if you're a bit of a maverick, maverick surgeon or maverick whatever pilot, um, and your team don't really know what you're attempting to do because yeah. you're not being a standardised way or the SOP way, how can they speak up? Because they don't know. So I think this, I think that came out of that Sunberger incident was. Um, you know, standardise until you absolutely have to improvise. And there will be moments you've got to improvise. You know, the, the people you deal with, every human being is different. There will be times when they don't fit the normal picture. And I think then, yeah. as the leader, you've got to say, OK, like, now we're sort of going off piece here we're, because it's not working. And then everybody knows. So we were very lucky. We worked in very strong standard operating procedures. So whoever was flying the airplane, the others knew what they were attempting to do. And so if it wasn't working, it would be easier to speak yeah. up. And can I go on with another thing that we, we developed, which was actually the sort of real game changer? Uh, we got involved with a, a European pan-European project, and we developed um, a system called the non-technical skills system, or no-tex, as it was rather boringly called. And this was where we divided human yeah. behaviour and team interaction into four areas. Two were social skills of, of leadership and teamwork, and two were yeah. cognitive skills of situation awareness and decision-making. And we actually identified markers that you could observe when you're observing a team and what effective um, behaviours were in these four areas. And actually it became much easier then because rather than me debriefing a team after a simulator ride and saying, well, I didn't think your command way was very good or your communication was very good. I mean, it's, it's actually communication is a very personal thing. And it's almost like saying to someone, I don't think you communicate very effectively. Yeah. It's a bit like saying, I don't think you smell very nice. It's a bit rude, you know? Um, and actually having this yeah. system, which we had on the walls of all the briefing rooms, you could say, look, research shows that this is an effective way or this is an ineffective way. And what were you doing? And actually somehow that made it much yeah. easier to be objective rather than subjective about people's behaviors and it was that was the sort of development of um sort of human factors in aviation and that was a big game changer and, and getting the language so everyone understood what um that we were talking the same language and what it actually meant because i think going back to what you said so you talk about the non-technical skills and i was surprised to read that the vast majority of errors or no misses arise from things like cognitive or, or making the wrong decisions as opposed to technical failures such yeah. as you know i don't know connecting the wrong connector yeah. in a drip line which yeah. absolutely amazed me i mean i was an anaesthetist so i think we we hear a lot about the airline parallels because we do have sort of time specific very protocol yeah. driven practice you know if, if we can't intubate or we can't ventilate these are our, these are our protocols to follow um, but other areas of medicine, perhaps ward-based or places where, in fact, they may not have such clear, you know, what might not be so easy to have SOPs. 
you talked a little about simulation. Do you think that's useful in the medical sphere? So, you know, can, can, can you train your brain so that when you go into that panic, actually you can default to a well-rehearsed system? Is, is, there, is there the science to back up that simulation helps in, in emergencies? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that simulation is fantastic. And actually, there often isn't a need for fantastic high-level, high-fidelity oh, okay. simulation. Uh, I mean, our, our simulators were very good. They were identical yeah. to the aeroplane. People got more nervous in the simulator than when they were... I had 400 people behind them. In fact, I had a very amusing, looking back on it, uh, I was flying into London. We'd been up all night flying back from Chicago or wherever. And the co-pilot said to me, oh, do you mind if I fly the airplane manually into Heathrow? And it's a little bit more. I said, well, I don't mind. But out of interest, why? When we're, we're, we're totally shattered and it, it's a lot more demanding on the other pilots, etc. Yeah. And he said, well, I've got my simulator tomorrow, my simulator check. And I sort of said to him, so you, let me get this right. You want to practice on 400 people because you're flying eight hydraulic jacks around tomorrow. But it, but it was like that because the simulator was the stressful time when you could lose your flying license. Yeah. Much like. um, so, so I, but I do think simulation is excellent and it can be really basic stuff because you can get that basic communication like... You know, getting to an instant. Yeah. Who's the first there? Well, they're the team leader. Uh, okay, and they're then going to give the next person to arrive what their role is. And so you can very quickly get a team yeah. established where you will give people roles and responsibilities, not based on their rank or their position in the hierarchy, but based on when they arrive and what you need. And I think that sort of thing can be done really, really well um, with very basic simulation. And, um, and one of the things I did think was very good, and I, I'm not sure how far it's been pursued, it was that SBAR yep. process that was, was being developed in, in hospitals where there was that communication protocol. So people could go in and think, oh, yeah, SBAR, what does that mean? And they yep. would, it may, because I think communication, um, when it's coming at you in a random way, it's really difficult. But if you know the order information is going to come, it makes it much easier to assimilate yep. it and then, and then make a decision based on that. So SBAR is an example of a closed loop communication Absolutely. system. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you think things like having a set way um, of communicating um, can be a helpful tool, particularly in Absolutely. Teams. And yeah. so for any yeah. safety critical things in flying, like yeah. um, moving on to a live runway, um, getting your takeoff clearance and responding to it, you know, the, still the worst ever airline disaster was in Tenerife North. And that was down to poor communication where the captain of the KLM airplane thought he'd had takeoff clearance. He was the most senior bloke in the whole KLM fleet. And the two junior people mm. with him never said I'm not sure that you have got clearance. Can you just confirm? Yeah. And um, this closed loop we did all the time. Um, and, and, you, and you have to because it's it's so important. And, and the odd thing is when you're in a really busy airspace, like, say, Heathrow Airport or whatever, um, there's so many communications going on between air travel control and loads of different airplanes. Your spark is when they call your flight number out. So say you were Speedbird 1, you know, you just, I mean, suddenly they say Speedbird 1 climbed to 5,000 feet. Um, you know, you can be doing all kinds of other stuff. The air traffic control doesn't know how busy you are. Um, and sometimes at the communication, you would think, did he say 5,000? Did he say 6,000? Now, the very worst thing to say back to the air traffic controller is, can you confirm we're clear to 5,000 feet? Because the answer to that is yes, because he's really busy. What you always do is ask open questions. So what altitude were we cleared to and then he's got to look at his strip of paper or computer and tell you again and um you'd hear it done 
inappropriately and correctly from time to time. But we did try and really make those critical things when you're clear to a certain height. And also, interestingly, yeah. no more than two or three pieces of information between the two parties at any one time, because our short term memories, as we know, and if anybody read the books, um, by Daniel Kahneman, our short-term memory is very poor as humans, very vulnerable. And so we need to write things down. We need to make sure we don't give loads of information. And, um, you know, I think that's really applies as much to healthcare as, as it does to um, aviation. Again, S-bar, just to clarify, so it's situation. So you should, a concise description of what, what's happening, the background, and then anything pertinent in the history or, or the situation. Your assessment of it, so what, what you found, what you think, what are your options, and then recommendation is what you want. Um, so again, I think we, we've yeah. seen it used, perhaps where more junior members of staff have used it as a way to approach someone for a review. Um, I have to say, it does feel slightly artificial. I think having used it for the first time and being trained to do it, I wonder whether pilots find it more easy because lots of what you're doing is very technical speak. But in medicine, if you've ever been in a cardiac arrest, you often have dozens of people. There's noise everywhere. There's people yeah. running around. There may be a leader, but there's so much background noise. So I think it's aspirational, but a great idea to get that, that control. Well, I, think, I think all these extra um, barriers make it even more important to have a standardised uh, protocol. And, uh, you know, I know, I, know, I know some people don't like protocolised stuff and... Um, well, but, but, but I've seen it work and I suppose I didn't realise how standardised we all were as pilots and particularly in large companies like British Airways. We, you know, but we had to be because we never flew with the same crew another time unless by accident. Yeah. So we had to know what each other were doing and that was really important. And, uh, um, and you know, I think there's lots of parallels with medicine because I think the days where you had the same firm and you knew everybody yeah. very well are, are long gone. Yes. Not even if you're locum in a regular role, you will often find yourself with um, perhaps locum staff or bank staff. You may find yourself seconded to a new, a different ward, or obviously in things like COVID, you're having to work in whole new environments, such as the intensive care unit. Yeah, yeah. So I think, like you say, those communications between colleagues that you don't know absolutely have to be maximised. Right? You need to remove that ambiguity and, and have that that consistency. Yeah. And of course, it's so multilingual the NHS these days, isn't it? There's so many backgrounds, sure. different cultures, where you know it, it makes it more important once again to get that effective communication with so many different nationalities and accents and such like and i think um one of the interesting things is um i don't know if you're aware of of gert hofsted who, who's done a lot of stuff on cultural differences mm -hmm. are you aware of any of his work he he's um he's an excellent chap um, i think he's dutch the Hofstede Centre, he calls it, and you can Google it. Um, and he's actually done for all nationalities. I think he worked with IBM, where there were 80 different nationalities or something, and did a lot of research. Um, and he talked, to, he, he does a, a rating for every nationality. And one of the scales he looks at is the power distance. Oh, yes. Um, and we, so this is meaning that junior people feel very yeah. unempowered to speak up and actually scared to speak up. Um, and if you look at how most um, UK hospitals, I'm sure around the rest of the world, uh, there's an awful lot of junior members of nursing staff and such like. Um, and that can make this um, ability to communicate effectively and speak up very, very difficult. And I would argue the only way to improve that is by training, having protocols and, um, and practicing. It's all very well to say, you know, I want you to use SPA. 
Qatar next Monday uh, from then on. But you've actually got to get them to practice. And I remember doing this in hospitals, getting people on a remote telephone to to, to, to practice doing yeah. an spa, uh, And it's difficult, but they one very rapidly gets better at it. And, and so I, I do believe that these, these things can really assist and make um, the patient's life safer and, uh, and the clinician's life nicer because they get less things to have to deal with subsequently when things get... Oh, yeah, I mean, nobody, nobody wants to go to work in an environment where they think there's uh, systems errors that could be remedied. So I think the idea that, you know, we are minimising any of those extraneous distracting factors yeah. that can be controlled because we know there's always an element of, of risk that can't be, can't be yeah. managed. Um, Guy, thank you. So I, I wanted to ask if you've got three tips. Now we've actually covered some areas, but what do you think, what could our listeners take back to their workplaces, whether they're in clinics, hospitals, GPs, research, yeah. laboratory base? What, what would be your three sort of top tips or perhaps things to go away with to try and think about the communication side of their human factors? Well, I mean, three things, you know, there's probably 3,000 things, but I think the the, the main thing, I, I think, and the thing that I suppose surprised me most when I started having an absolute honour of working in medical um, environments. And I, I really mean that. I mean, I was in awe of, of a lot of things I saw. In fact, the, the person who forced, first called me in at Great Ormership was Professor Mark de Laval, who sadly died only a week ago. And he was a visionary uh, cardiac surgeon. And he, he realised the importance of this stuff and, um, and, and did a lot of work on it. Um, I think... I, I can't. We, I, we couldn't just pilot envisioned starting a day's work without having a briefing of the whole team, and that yeah. is the cabin crew team, the flight crew team. Then we get together because because we are a team, and you've got to rapidly form a team. You know, because literally an hour after you meet, you could have your worst moment of your life where you have a an engine fire at some sort of maximum weight taking off from Heathrow yeah. or something. So you've got to be on your game, and you've never met these people before. So that that's briefing skill and it is a skill it's not something you can just do is so important and I'm not sure if I ever really observed top level briefings going on it, it because people have to be trained in it and of course the other big difference with aviation is that it's regulated we can't do this stuff we don't have a license anymore whereas it tends to be much more voluntary in 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 healthcare so I think that's probably one of the the biggest things the second one and sorry oh sorry to interrupt you with the briefings so would that involve going around each member of the team and their role, just to understand what the briefing... Yes, I mean, just getting... I mean, they often call it huddles, um, yeah. but having a proper checklist with it and, and so making sure yeah. you covered all the aspects. I, I remember talking to um, theatre nurses and they would have um, a little notebook for each surgeon about what they yeah. wanted for each operation. Well, the that kids. should be discussed because yeah. yeah. they don't know. You, know, you, you would see the the consultant surgeon, the consultant, the registrar um, talking a bit, and you yeah. see the two, the anaesthetic team talking with the ODP and the consultant, and yeah. you see the nursing team, but they didn't seem to get together and all have that, yeah. because having that same situation awareness about what's going to happen today, which you then update yeah. by having mini briefings throughout the day, less formally, is how we make sure we don't make mistakes. Because I passionately believe that we're actually very good at decision-making, if we've got the right mental picture. When we get it wrong, it's normally because yes. we've got slightly the wrong mental picture. And the best way yeah. to get an effective, correct mental picture or situation awareness is by starting the day having as high as you can before it all kicks off. And then when things yeah. develop and things change, 
whoever notices a change or is aware of change brings it into the kind of team. So I think briefings would be my number one thing. Secondly, yeah. um, and I know some people like it, but we used to use checklists. They were incredibly effective when you're tired. And, and yeah. I know it's doing things by rote, which a lot of um, medics don't like, but having a checklist for situations, particularly, uh, I know one A&E consultant who's brilliant, and he, he said, look, I've been doing this for years, but at two o'clock in the morning when I get a small child in, I need to check the, the doses yeah. I'm going to give. And the only way I can yeah. be sure is by getting my checklist or my, my little help card out or whatever. Absolutely. So I think that's something that's simple, um, and can be done very well. I think the other thing these days has got to be distraction. I mean, you've only got to walk around any major city, people bumping into each other on the pavements because they're all looking at their mobile phones. Because mobile yeah. phones are the biggest distractors in our lives. And they're self-distractors because you can't not look when your phone pings. And I've seen them around medical environments too, where, you know, there's that sort of ping and so how someone has a half look. You know, we distract each other all the time. Um, yeah. How important is it? I think still after falls, drug errors are probably one of the biggest issues in, in healthcare. And actually, you've got to make sure that people aren't distracted when they're joining up drugs or whatever aspect of the drug chain yeah. it is. So I think really making an environment where distractions are at their minimum would probably be my third tip. So if you want three things, briefing, checklists and stopping distractions as best we can. Um, I'm not being self-distracted would be my kind of top tips from, from Guy. <laughs> you get bonus points because they're alphabetical. <laughs> and they're Thank you, Katie. I love, I love anything that's easy to remember. So briefing, checklist, distractions. And I think I've written down a phrase that I'm going to carry with me and maybe um, it'll be my new motto. is brief for the expected, but increase your capacity for the unexpected. Absolutely. Which I think is a good maxim for life, isn't it? I think it is. Um, um, so... Guy, thank you so much. I think it's been fascinating to hear, and I wish we I wish we could talk for longer. Because so um, I think there are so many parallels between aviation and medicine, but obviously so many interesting differences that we've barely scratched the surface yeah. on. But thank you so much. So I think what we've what we've talked about really is you need to have somebody who's in charge or in control. Yeah. You need a leader, but that leader must be um, approachable. Yeah. They must be um, aware of their own potential to make mistakes, yeah. and they have to truly listen as well as. Um, communicate you know receive and transmit um checklists and protocols have their place yeah. uh, but obviously they need to be used properly i yeah. guess we never fill in the back page of the checklist oh, okay why not we just don't do that here yeah, no, like okay. that. so and they've got to obviously be um i guess not so cumbersome that doctors or, or nurses don't use them yeah. so they've got to absolutely. be you know and, and not part of an audit trail you know, when when when, oh, the, yes. when, when Atul Gandhi's checklist started, uh, some hospitals started having it to be signed for. I've never heard Easy of a checklist signed for yeah. because that's completely the wrong message. Because actually, what's that saying yeah. is, oh yeah, the checklist was done ninety-seven percent of occasions. It doesn't. It says somebody signed something ninety-seven percent of yes. occasions. So it's got to be useful to the practitioners who are using it. Absolutely. And finally, distraction, which I think is a great one to end on. Like you say, I think we've never had more opportunity to be distracted. Yeah in what we're doing um and again even even something you've done a million times we know that the body sometimes you just for whatever reason you you're you have a blip and you pick up the wrong ampule or you you read it and you read the wrong drug because you're expecting to see something yeah. else so i think uh yeah eliminating distraction is also a very good general piece of advice yeah. so thank you so much for your time i really thank appreciate you. it and um thank you for giving us a taste of human factors 
So we've heard from Guy Hurst today about human factors and how we can apply them in our own workplaces. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And if you're a member of Medical Protection Society and want to know more about today's topic, we strongly encourage you to make the most of your membership. And you can rewatch our webinar, Understanding Human Factors to Improve Clinical Performance and Patient Safety with Dr. James Thorpe and Professor Peter Brennan. Links for these can be found in the podcast description. And with that, we reach the end of today's podcast, Human Factors in Times of Crisis. If you're new to podcasts, maybe listening for the first time, make sure you subscribe to the channel to make listening easier in the future. You can access this podcast from all the major apps, including Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. For more information about Medical Protection Society and who you were listening to today, please look for details in the podcast description. Thank you for listening.